Thank uh, Haley and Kyle for leading us in singing. Yeah, good. Uh, my name is Derek. Again, if you have a Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 6 is where we're going to be today. The page number's on the screen if you picked up a Bible at the door. Uh, that's where we'll be, and there's a few others that we'll do along the way. Um, I want to tell you this story. I guess it's probably 12 years ago. I was working for a church, and I was a, the youth minister, clearly. And um, I still get asked that question. So do you youth guy at your church or whatever? Um, no. I was working as a youth minister. I was young, early 20s, and every now and then they would ask me to lead worship because I could play and sing or whatever. And so every time I would lead worship, I would have my guitar on because I just feel weird not having an instrument on. Maybe it's like a security thing. Plus, I have no moves. I have no dance moves. So um, at least that you know of. (laughs) So I play guitar. Well, there was a, a small number in the church that I was working for then where the guitar and worship was a source of uh, tension, right? That doesn't happen anymore, but it was a source of tension for some people. Well, again, I gave no thought to that. I just did what I did. And so there was this one Sunday where it was during communion and the church that I was working for, they would pass the plates down the aisle. So it would take some time. And so I would play. Uh, I was playing this song, and then I sang this song during communion, just like we did just a second ago. It was some hymn or whatever. And uh, finished with that. The sermon happened. Day was over. Service was over. People were leaving. And uh, one of the pastors was at the door saying goodbye to people. You know, the, just the, hey, how you doing? Good to see you. Great to see you. Nice, nice kid. You know, whatever. Uh, he's beautiful, really. The... Uh, So that's what was happening, and this one guy, and I was told this the next day at staff meeting, but there was this one gentleman who was shaking the pastor's hand, and the pastor said, thanks for coming, have a great day, and he said, and I quote, as far as I'm concerned, you can take that guitar and burn it, and then he left. So we got together, and we burned his yard up, so... (laughs) No, I'm kidding. Which reminds me of this verse where Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. And this comes in a context of him saying, look, it's just not going to be easy. You're going to receive criticism. You're going to receive disapproval. Especially over me, right? So, now I didn't hear about this till the next day. I was in staff meeting and the guy came, that the pastor, one of the pastors came in and relayed the story and said, you just need to know that this was said, which in and of itself is a sort of a strange thing. Like, I just want you to know that this was said, which also feels kind of dirty, you know, like, so what are you saying, right? But again, I'm 24 or whatever, and I'm thinking, I didn't know it was that big of a deal. Like, I really had no intentions of making anybody uncomfortable. I had no intentions of upsetting anybody because it to me it was just worship and worship really isn't about the guy who doesn't like the guitar right it's not even about me and i'm sorry it's not about you and so i just was not even thinking in those terms but that experience was the first time in ministry not necessarily in life but it was the first time in ministry where i felt uh, felt watched you know i felt like people were keeping score i mean i've gotten emails here i'd go home and like two days later somebody email me and say hey good job on the sermon, and I like your new socks. 
like, okay, <laughs> restraining order. <laughs> um, but it was the first time I felt like people were keeping score. And so every time I got up to do what I do, I would feel like this, there was something between me and what I was supposed to be doing on stage. And what that was was this fear of what, whoever that was, because I never knew who it was, but whoever that was, what, what were they thinking where were they sitting? What section were they? Right? So I'm up there to lead worship or to preach and teach, and yet what's between me and the task is this fear of what people might be saying. What restaurant do they go to afterwards and have this conversation about whether it was appropriate or not? I mean, like, that, that's what started to get in the way of me doing what I was doing. And the thing is, criticism does that to us, doesn't it? No matter what it is, it just does that. Is that somebody's car, by the way? <laughs> go get it the uh, most of us in the room have learned the lesson and and the lesson is simply this that there isn't any way for us to live our lives uh, and make all the people in our lives happy all of the time are you with me now there are some of you a small number of you that are still optimistic like you still believe that somehow you can like the architecture of your lives and relationships is such that you can make everybody happy all the time. But the rest of us have learned through a series of experiences or one big massive experiences, that's just not possible. We can't do it. Now, the, difficult, the difficulty in that is that we want to be approved by people. We want to have this life where people look at us and say, hey, I like what you're doing. It's great. But it doesn't work that way. And the thing about it is, and you know this to be true, it doesn't matter how many people say to you, hey, great job. Great job with the presentation. Great job with the way you coach the team. Great job with this in here. Great job with whatever it is that you were doing. If 100 people say great job, and the 101st person says, I really got a problem with what you said, or I think what you said was ridiculous, or what you did was way off base, it doesn't matter what the 100 people said, right? Right? We stay up at night because of the 101st person that the devil sent our way. We stay up because of the 101st person that says, I got a problem with it. I want to criticize you. I want to disapprove of what you were trying to do or trying to say or trying to be. I want to disapprove of that right here in front of you. I want to say that. And worse is to hear about it, is it not? Like you feel like things are moving along, but then you hear about it like the pastor who says, I just want you to know that you're hacking people off. But it's okay. Don't worry about it. just want you to know. So, it can paralyze us uh, because we want to be in life with people and that they approve of us. But most of us have learned that lesson that it's not. It's not possible. But if we think that it is, it will cause us to do all sorts of things. I mean, as a, uh, as a parent, if I want my son to approve of me, to like me, then I'll enable him I'll give him anything he wants. I'll let him do anything he wants to do. I'll never say no, right? And then he'll disrespect me so much because I wanted to be the cool dad and just like, he's my, he's my best bud, right? It doesn't work. Or uh, as an employee at a company or maybe to be approved of, you compromise what you know is right or you compromise the situation and you go around what's ethical and simply just to like get up a little bit higher like you just I want to be approved of right or as a um, 
As a Christian, there are all sorts of ways that we want to make sure that people like us. We want to make sure that people look at our lives and think that it's going well and think that that's something to attain. Uh, And the list is long. The list goes on and on and on. But I want to say this before we get into the text today. The Bible, almost all throughout, when it comes to approval from people, many times, if not most of the time, says that it's not necessary all of the time. There are some times where uh, making sure that people are happy and making sure that they're with you is necessary. But when it comes to your faith, when it comes to who you are, when it comes to what God has made you to be, it's not necessary that you are approved by anyone. And so we're going to look at that today. Are you there? Second Samuel 6. We're in a series on the life of David. David was the second king of Israel. The time frame here is about 1000 BC. Uh, this is week five. The first four weeks he was not king. Now he's king. And so this is maybe the first story uh, that we're looking at. It is the first story that we're looking at in the series where David is uh, king of Israel. And the central piece to the story is the Ark of the Covenant. Have you seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? Okay, so you have some understanding of what this is not, but you have some understanding of uh, sort of what we're talking about here. They do a pretty good job of the size and the structure of the thing, but basically the word ark means box. And it was a wooden box, and they decorated it for sure, but it's not a giant box, but it's just a box. And it was carried by the priests. It could only be carried by the priests, the Levites. Now, the history of the ark between Israel and the Philistines was this sort of, my Scooby-Doo band-aid keeps coming off, that's why it's a Scooby-Doo band-aid. The the history with the ark between Israel and the Philistines is this back-and-forth possession thing. The Israelites have it, the Philistines have it, the Israelites have it, the Philistines have it. I was telling last service, the, one of the funniest stories about the ark in the possession of the Philistines is the Philistines took it to their temple, and it was this temple to their god named Dagon. And it's in the temple, and Dagon is this statue, of course, and the next morning they come back, and the statue is, has fallen over in front of the ark, right? So you have this picture of God going, you know, because uh, if you have to pick up your god, Might want to get a new God. We've got to pick up the God. Uh, so it's this back and forth thing between Israel, Israel and the Philistines. Now, in our story today, the ark is being returned to Jerusalem. It's being returned to the city of David. And uh, leading up to our text, it's chaos. People have died. It's not going well. Uh, God is not pleased with how they're dealing with it. So David puts a stop to the project, and he just stores it in a friend's house for three months. It just sits there. And uh, that's where we pick up. Oh, wait, let me just tell you a little bit about the ark that you need to know. Next slide. We have a little slide here. What's in the ark is important. Uh, Maybe you knew this, maybe you didn't know this, but there are three things within the ark, and there's a fourth thing about the ark that make this so important. The first thing that's in the ark is the law. This is the Ten Commandments. This is Moses' work on the stones. And so carried around in the box by the priests was the laws of God. Now, the Ten Commandments were a summation, a summary of all the commandments in the scriptures. You can just sort of divide the Ten Commandments up into two halves, the first four being love God, the second four being love your neighbor as yourself, or the second, or the, the six, four and six. And so that sits in the box. 
Now, the law represents a lot of things, but namely it represents that God has a particular way that he wanted his people to live. And so the law was there to remind the people, the Israelites, how God wanted them to live their lives, which was very important because in those days, most of the religions, if not all of the religions, struggled to know where they stood with their own God. You never knew. You just never knew where you stood with your God. So you would just keep trying. You would keep praying. You would keep sacrificing. In fact, child sacrifice became normal because people never knew where they stood, so they just kept upping the sacrifice. And God comes along and says, here, do these things, and you can know where you stand. You can have peace with God. And so the law was to us, we look back and go, man, that's just all crazy stuff. But for them, it was freedom because it was, if I do these things, I know that I can rest in peace with God. But so in the box that was carried by the priests was the law of God, which represented God's uh, desire for their life. Also in the box is manna, this piece of food. It was in a jar. And if you don't know the backstory to the manna, it's simply that Moses had led the people out of slavery and into freedom, and yet they're just wandering in the desert and they're starving. So the people go and they complain to Moses, right? So Moses gets some criticism and they say to him, they say, look, we would have been better off dying in Egypt. He's, they said, because at least there we sat around and the scripture says pots of meat. So they're saying as slaves we ate better than this, but you have brought us the whole assembly out here to die. So Moses is getting some criticism. So Moses goes to God and says, God, they're really ticked. And so God says, it's okay, well, I'll provide, I'll give them food to eat. So each and every day, God would, it was a miracle, basically, God would provide this food for them, which they called manna, and there would be water that was healthy to drink. And so each and every day, God would provide. But the instructions from God were, have the people collect enough food for just the day. And on the sixth day, have them collect for two days, because I don't want them working on the seventh day. So it was the introduction to rest and trust in God. We call it the Sabbath. And so those are the instructions. This is why Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, give us today our what? Our daily bread. It's a call back to the Exodus. It's a call back to the people of Israel post-slavery and relying on God each and every day. So it's not just the law that's in there, God's desires for His people, but there's food in there, which is simply just a physical reminder that God provides. So this is a big deal for them. Also in there is Aaron's staff. Aaron is the brother of Moses, and so the staff of Aaron is in the box. Now the staff is a symbol of leadership. It's a symbol of direction. It's a symbol of discipline. It's a symbol of, you know, movement. To say the Lord is my shepherd sounds very beautiful, but there's also the issue of the the shepherd has a staff, and the staff was for correction and redirection and all that. And so we have not just God's desires for his people, and not just that he provides, but that God also leads that his relationship with us is not just sort of in a spin cycle, but it's going somewhere. There's leadership involved. But most importantly about the ark was this. Next slide. It symbolized the presence of God with his people. So it's a God is with kind of thing. So when the ark was in the presence of the people of Israel, it symbolized and represented that God was with them. When it wasn't with them, there was this feeling that God was not with them. So the most important thing about it was that it just represented God's presence with them. Now, we think this is silly, but let me just encourage you. You can go to countries, and I've been to some, where no one has the Scriptures. No one. They're memorizing what they hear the preachers say that travel through. They don't have it. 
So you go to those places and you pull out your own worn Bible and bulletin filled and you throw that on the table, the whole community would come around that and be, it would be an exciting thing for them. Man, you have all of the Scriptures. And to hear stories about people in other countries that only have a couple of pages of a Bible they found and they just store those in secret. And we just have, what, ten of these in the home? And we forget them. And just like for us today, the words on these pages, they represent all of this. God's desires that He provides, that He uh, leads us, and ultimately that He is not away from us, but that He is with, that He is with us. So there's a with factor here. So the fact that the ark is coming back to Jerusalem is a big deal. Let's look at verse 12. Now we'll walk through the story. It says, Now King David was told, uh, now, the king, now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom. This is the friend's house that he had the ark stored at for about three months. And everything he has because of the ark of God. So David is getting news that, hey, where we stored the ark, there's all sorts of cool things happening in the life of your friend. So David went down and brought up the ark of God. In other words, well, we need to get a hold of that. Brought up the ark of God uh, from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David, which is Jerusalem, with what? What does it say? Rejoicing. Let's try the word again. Rejoicing. Yeah, this is because God is with us. He has returned to us. This is what they think and believe, and they're excited about this. So the fact that the ark is coming back to Jerusalem is a symbol of God's presence. So they're rejoicing about it. Now, look at what it says next. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he, David, sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. So every six steps they would stop. It's this Sabbath rhythm, six, rest, six, rest, six, rest. A reminder again of what's in the box. And so David would sacrifice every seven or every six steps. He would offer a sacrifice. 14, verse 14, David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might. So now we got David dancing. While he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. Now, it says David is wearing an an ephod. Everybody says this is underwear. David, like, stripped down to his underwear, which we thought would be a fun way to do the sermon, but we're not doing it that way. (laughs) The ephod was a traditional garment worn underneath your clothing, your outer clothing, but it was normally worn by priests. So David has something that's normally worn by priests, and he's taken off his robe, and he's wearing this, and he's dancing with the people, all right? Now, the thing about the robe, if you were here last week and even the first week when we looked at the story of Jonathan giving his robe to David, the robe was such a symbol of leadership, and the fact that David was a king, his own robe would have been quite distinguished, you know, compared to the other people's robes. And so David goes down into the streets with his people, and he takes off what distinguishes him as a king, and he dances with the people. So just as the ark represents God with his people, David himself assumes the same position by removing what separates him from his people and looking and acting and dancing as though he is just one of them. And so David disrobes and lowers himself as it were. And it says that he danced with all his might, 
The word here is kol oz. It's on the screen. It means with everything, with strength, with all your might. The same phrase is used in uh, the greatest commandment, to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That everything that's inside of you comes out like it's this exhausting thing. Turn to Ecclesiastes 3, just a few books forward, right in the middle of the Bible. It's a pretty famous chapter. It's a time for this, a time for that. Um, All sorts of interesting things that are said there, but in verse 4, the writer says, there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to what? To dance. Time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. There's a rhythm to life. There's a rhythm between mourning and dancing. Life is not all mourning and life is not all dancing. There are times for each. And in this case, this is the time not to mourn for David and his people, but this is the time to dance. This is the time to celebrate. This is the time not to weep, but to laugh. The ark is being returned. The presence of God is back on site. And so this is not a time to sit around and let it pass by. In David's mind, this is a time to dance. Go back to the story, 2 Samuel. Verse 16. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David... Michael, that's his wife, daughter of Saul, watched from a window, so she's not with him. She's just, David does his thing, I do my thing, which is watch him from the window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she, what? Despised him. She despised him in her heart. So she sees David, and she has this, like, angry feeling. And she despises him. Not what he's doing, but him. It's almost like she doesn't love him. She doesn't like him. She can't stand the sight of him. What he's doing embarrasses her. So she despises who he is and who he's become. And then, in verses 17 through 19, are just some details of the party. In verse 19, it says, then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. So just equality. I mean, the king just lavished it out to everyone. And all the people went to their homes. And then in verse 20, it says, when David returned home to bless his own household. So it's like, I will go home now and we'll we'll continue the celebration. This is a great day. Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, Oh, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. Can you hear that? You don't even have to read it with that tone. You can hear the tone. Oh, here comes the dancer. There he is. So you think you can dance right here. She says, Oh, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today disrobing in the sight of slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would do. The word for vulgar is the word rakim. It means empty and worthless. So backing up, David dancing with all his might. Everything in him is full of what he's experiencing. He's fully present. He's fully engaged. He's fully involved. And his wife turns around and says, you're empty and worthless. You're vulgar, rakim, as any empty person would do. You danced and celebrated. 
I remember uh, in uh, youth ministry, we would do these retreats, you know, it might be a week long in the summer uh, or something like that. And inevitably, somebody, a student, something would change in their life. Not like this crazy, like, everything has changed, but a light would come on, you know, about a certain passage or a certain thing that, that we, we were studying or whatever, and they would begin to make adjustments, and they're like, oh, okay, I get it. Love your neighbors yourself means this for me, okay? And so they would just get it. Or they would, uh, we would do something about prayer, and they would begin to shift, and they would reframe and reshape who they were. And so there were always these moments where a kid's life, a student's life would be radically altered. And uh, it'd be a great experience for them and others as well. And it might even be the story where someone uh, would decide to follow Christ. I want to, I want to, commit my life to the ways of Jesus. I mean, that would happen as well. But inevitably, we would leave the retreat, and it would, you know, we're always quite excited. I mean, we've had fun together. It's been a long week, and uh, everybody's happy and excited. It's just been a, a good, filled time of just being with God and with others. Inevitably, we would go home late. A, because you're a youth group. B, the girls can never pack their caboodles fast enough. And, um, <laughs> which is just a tackle box with Hello Kitty stickers. That's all that is. Um, so we're always late because of something like that. You know, 10, 15, maybe half an hour, I don't know. And we would get back to the, uh, the church, and there was always one parent, and it would always be the kid. It just always worked this way. It would always be the kid or the kids who... This weekend or this retreat or this camp was everything to them. You know, their eyes were opened. Again, not in a crazy way, but in like, oh, I get it. I get what Jesus was saying, and this changes everything for me, right? And all the parents would be, hey, it's good to see you. Thanks, Derek, for taking them on the thing, this and that and the other. And then there's the one parent, and that kid comes up, and there's no hello, there's no how was it. It's just get in the car, we're late, right? And you know and I know that that is a moment where whatever happened at the camp was gone. Because it's one of those things where like, oh, I'm back in the real world now. I'm back with my dad, who could really care less about my faith. Or I'm back with my mom, who's, you know, she comes to church every week, but you'd never know it outside of that, you know. So I'm back in the real world now, and I'm squelched. And that kid returns to church on a Wednesday and a Sunday, and that Wednesday and Sunday becomes for him a refuge, but that's it. So you can imagine the same feeling when David returns after such an amazing, for him, an amazing experience of just celebrating what God has done and the fact that he's present and he's with us. And his own wife looks at him and goes, you're so ridiculous. You're so ridiculous. You're so undistinguished. You're so empty and worthless as a person. But I like David's response. If you were here for the David and Goliath week, David can, he can talk some trash. He can spit a good game. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father. That's all you got to hear right there. Who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel? 
I will celebrate before the Lord. That's what he said in the beginning. It was before the Lord that he danced, not, not her. So I will celebrate before the Lord. Verse 22, I will become even more undignified than this. He's saying, look, I'm fine. I'll just get more stupid. I'll humiliate myself. He says, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. Like, I'll take it all the way to that. And I know that this is a marital fight, and he's going to say things, but David is saying to her, look, it has nothing to do with you at all. The way I express my passion and love for God is between me and God, not me and you. And he says, look, I'll, I'll get worse than that. And I'll humiliate myself in my own eyes. But by these slave girls that you spoke of, I will be held in honor. Another dig, but just to say, look, it's not about you. It's about God. And so, a couple of takeaways for you. One, if you are a follower of Jesus... There will inherently be things about your life that other people look at and think, that's crazy. Let me say it again. If you are a follower of Jesus, there will be things about your life, just inherently, that others look at and say, well, that's just, that's just crazy. That doesn't make sense. That's not reasonable. That's undistinguished. That's empty, worthless. It's going to happen. It must happen. Uh, a couple in our church here, they're, they're gone uh, because they decided one day that they were going to leave their jobs and go on the mission field to go serve people around the world. And they emailed us. They were teaching our middle school and high school class at the time. They emailed us and said, look, this is what we're going to do. We're going to quit our jobs, get rid of our stuff, and move across the country and get trained, and then we're off to some part of the world. And certainly, I mean, they both had great jobs and certainly like people in their workplace were like come again what what are you what you know i can't tell you how many times i've seen people make decisions like that and the people in their lives go i don't get it it's just strange that you would do that I mean, this story is about dancing and singing and whatever, but it's more than that. Because there are other ways that this happens. There are other ways that this happens in our lives. And I I would assume that for some of you in the room that simply just getting up on a Sunday and coming here is a source of confusion for some people in your life. You know, they just, really, you get up on Sunday. I mean, most of the people in the building we live in are just getting up right now. And they know what we do, and they know what, you know, they, they're not unaware of what I do. And sometimes I'll be leaving the house. I'll come out, you know, and I've got my stuff on and my neighbor's walking his dog and he looks completely beat up and he's just like, hey man, good luck today or whatever. But I'm thinking that for some of you, I mean, I'm expected to be here. I mean, I, this is what I do. But I'm thinking for some of you that for some people in your life, it's a source of confusion simply that you come here. I mean, another thing is that we take up we take up offering every week to not just keep us running and doing the things that we do in this city, but to support the work of God in our city and around the world. And for so many people, because the satirical stuff about the church and money is out there, so clearly people think of that 
is the most ridiculous thing. That you would put hard-earned money into a plate. And some people don't get that. And they don't have to get that. You just need to know that. But it's just one of those things where it's another, it's another thing people look at and just think that's crazy. Or maybe you pray for your meal in a restaurant. It just seems so simple. But there are certainly people in there that think that's the strangest thing. Now, every time we pray for a meal, my waiter ends up just standing there waiting. Has this ever happened to you? We used to eat at this Mexican restaurant all the time, and they would like stack the plates on their arm and, you know, and the guy's praying and he's like, hot plate amigo, you know. So let's wrap it up, you know. So, uh, but certainly, certainly that can be a source of confusion. The fact that you're a Christian might be the source of confusion for people in your lives. I try hard not to tell people what I do when I'm on the airplane or whatever because I want to have a conversation, you know? I don't want to be like 18 feet off the ground and they go, what do you do? I'm a pastor and then he puts the headphones on and that's it, you know? But I think for some of you, simply your faith alone can be a source of confusion. I think on the practical end, some, you know, some of you have made a commitment to be faithful to your spouse. And I'm not living in some other world. I know that that's not always the case with people. I've seen more damage in relationships than probably you have. And the truth of the matter is, there are some people in your life that think the fact that you are committed to your spouse is ridiculous. And then it's not necessary. Or that you control your alcohol intake. That you stop at a certain point because you understand that the Scriptures call us to be fully present and not somewhere else. And the people in your life think that's confusing and maybe ridiculous. It's empty. It doesn't mean anything. Or maybe you don't take advantages of situations at work to get ahead because you know that's not right. And everyone else looks at your life and says, that's confusing. And hear what I'm going to say here. There ought to be some level of confusion about my life. There ought to be. There has to be. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is making these announcements about the way the kingdom looks, the way the kingdom of God operates. And in chapter 5, it's a pretty famous riff. I mean, he's talking about salt and light. And he says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, all sorts of things have been said about salt. I mean, it was used for currency. It was a preservative. But Ultimately, it provides flavor. No one doesn't know that salt's on their food. But he says, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? So it's this sort of confusing question. I don't know. And he answers that it's no longer good for anything. So if your life loses what God has wanted it to be, if your life loses its effectiveness, its confusion... It's stark contrast to culture. Jesus says it's no good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. It's a very heavy, it's a very heavy statement. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Put this one in your memory. I mean, this is, uh, this is fantastic. The screen says verse 13 through 15, but I want to read to you from 11. And this is Paul speaking. He says, Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. 
We try to persuade men. In other words, we're trying to like get this message out. He says, what we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again. In other words, we have no concern that you like us or dislike us, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer to those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. So he's making a distinction between who you are might be different than how you're living. And so if you're living in line with who you really are and who God has called you to be, people will ask questions. So that's a long way of saying that. Verse 13, and this is it, man. This is like worth the ticket price today. If we are out of our mind, if we're crazy, it is for the sake of God. So Paul says, if we seem a little crazy to you, it's not because of you, it's because of Jesus. If we seem strange, if we seem undignified, if we seem off our rocker, it's because of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. So Paul's saying, look, there's just going to be things about our lives and the way we do things and the way we interact with people that you're just going to look at and go, you guys are completely out of your mind, right? And he says, that's okay. But if we hold it together, it's for your sake. So Paul draws a line in the sand and says, there are times when we hold it together. There are times when we just sort of fit in. And then there are times where we seem to the rest of the world crazy. Does this make sense? 9.30 was all over it. You guys are like, what? That's fine. (laughs) Paul is saying something very heavy here and just saying, look, if there are moments that you look at us in our worship, in our marriages, in the way we work, in the way that we interact with our neighbors, if you look at us and think, well, that's weird. That's because of Jesus. That's what he's saying. And if we seem together, it's really for nothing other than your sake. Look at what he says in verse 15, or in verse 14. For Christ's love compels us. So there's nothing static about the love of God. It, it moves in us. It compels us. And true love always causes us to loosen up our edges. It says, for, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. I mean, this is a big amen moment. I mean, Paul's saying, look, we live this way because it's for him. It's not for you. But we'll hold it together every now and then so that you, for your sake. So there ought to be some level of confusion about my life. And if I'm a follower of Jesus, there's just going to be things about me that cause other people to look at my life and say, well, that's just strange. Finally, I have to be okay with uh, people misunderstanding who I am. You know, David comes back at his wife and says, look, I understand that what I was doing or whatever is embarrassing to you and you despise me, but I'm okay with that because it's not for you. And so I have to learn to be okay with misunderstanding from people. The dancers danced to the Psalm uh, 46. And the first line in there says, God is my refuge. And the word for refuge is, next screen, makesa. And it means shelter from falsehood. 
So there's this tone in the beginning of the psalm that God is my refuge when people are speaking against me. God is my refuge when I'm being accused of things that I didn't do. God is my refuge when everyone's out to get me, but I'm innocent. Now the word refuge here is the same word that's used in uh, another part of the Old Testament in Deuteronomy where they had laid down this law that if you, for some reason, accidentally killed your neighbor, just some sort of farming accident or whatever, that you could run to these cities of refuge, these cities of Makesa, and you would be safe there. So the tone of the phrase, God is my refuge, is surrounded in chaos or by chaos. It's surrounded by someone who feels like they're on the run. They're trying to survive. They're trying to get to where uh, it's safe. And so to say God is my refuge is to say so much. It's not just a cool song. It's just God is the place I go when nothing else seems to be working. God is the place I go when it seems like everyone else is against me and I'm innocent. And so there is this sense in which there's peace in this phrase that God is my refuge. And so I have to be okay with people misunderstanding maybe my actions or the way that I live my life because ultimately God is the one that gives me shelter from that. God is the one who gives me peace in the way that I'm living. And when I obey the Scriptures, it's tough. That's why Jesus said, in this world you'll have trouble, because when you are living out these things, people, people don't always like that. And it's confusing, and there's a misunderstanding. But it's okay. God calls us to that. And He wants us to be genuine with Him. And so when David is dancing in front of the ark, although it seems undignified, which he labeled it as that, sure, I'll even get humiliated more than that. But there's a sense of genuineness there that this is not about you or anybody else. This is about God. Let me close with a simple story. It's not, it's not a great story, but it, it'll make some sense to you. Many, many years ago, I was at a conference for pastors, and there was thousands of people there. And it was held in a church that could hold that many. And the church was very, very large. And when you're large as a church, there's all sorts of criticism, you know, like it's whatever. I mean, you just label it. I mean, as soon as you get famous, you're, you're no good anymore. So my goal is to never be successful. <laughs> so um, I just want to be on the cusp of famous. But um, so anyway, we're there and there's all these thousands of people there, and the worship leader who worked at that church is leading worship, and that particular night, we were on the front row, because we got there early and got good seats and whatever, and they're singing this song. It's this old hymn. It's called, There's Something About That Name, and it's just beautiful, and the words in there are like, you know, kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall, but there's something about that name, the name of Jesus, and they're just singing this, it's just a hymn, you know, and the band's playing and whatever, but they're just singing this song, and I looked up and I noticed that the worship leader, although he was singing and leading, he had tears coming down his face because there's something about that name that welled up inside of him. And so he's crying and yet leading, singing. But I think six, eight rows back, no one knew this. And I leaned over to my friend and I said, I think it's real to him, right? I think what we're a part of here is something that if we weren't here he would still be doing that. I feel like, and I've led worship enough to know and distinguish these things. I said, I feel like we are a part of his worship and not the other way around. 
I feel like He's going there with or without us. Because it's not for us. It's for the Lord. Does that make sense? It's a genuineness of heart. Let's close with this passage in Galatians chapter 1. Paul spends much of his early sentences and riffs in his letters sort of defending himself. And this verse right here, verse 10, if you're a leader, if you're a parent, if you're a friend, if you are an employee, if you're a stay-at-home mom, if you live in a neighborhood with a homeowner's association, if you have a pulse, this is a memorization piece for you. Paul says in verse 10, am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? That's a question that should precede much of our day. Am I trying to please you or God? Now, there will be, pleasing people is part of pleasing God. Serving people is part of pleasing God. But Paul is drawing in to the center the question of which one is first. He says, or am I trying to please men? And then he says, if I were still trying to please men, so we have this tone of like, I'm not trying to please you. If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now again, serving Christ involves pleasing people. It involves loving people. It involves serving people. But being a servant of Christ is first. Pleasing God is first. God is the first priority of my life. And so Paul says, what am I trying to do here? Am I trying to live life for you or for God? Am I trying to make you happy or God happy? Am I trying to win your approval or his approval? And then he just makes a heavy statement. If I was trying to please men, then I would no longer be a servant of Christ. So as I said in the beginning, there are times when being approved of is good. But the Scriptures tell us that it's not always necessary. I had a friend on his desk. He had taped this little thing that he typed out. It just said, he was a pastor, and it said, you are not the Messiah. So he came to work every day, and that's what he saw on the desk. You are not the Savior. To which I have said, and keep in mind that Jesus died on the cross of hatred and disapproval. Not only are you not the Messiah, the Messiah was perfect, and they killed him. And so it is no use for me to wake up every day and have some sort of pipe dream that I can make everybody happy in my life, especially when it comes to my faith, because there are things about my life that must be a little different, and there must be some bit of confusion about who I am to the rest of the people that I know. And secondly, I have got to be okay with people misunderstanding me when I respond to God in so many ways. And that's the challenge. When David danced before the ark and received criticism from his wife, that story is no different than when we do things out of obedience for God and people go, well, that was dumb. You could have spent the money there. You could have been here. You could have done that. Whatever. It doesn't matter because I'm not trying to please you. I'm trying to please God. Make sense? Yeah, we could do that one every week, I think. I'm going to pray. I don't want you to leave because we have an announcement at the end, so please stick around. Uh, but I'm going to pray. We're going to sing and then, uh, and then just be seated. Let's stand together. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who came and 
showed us that you love the whole world and as the scriptures say that you, you love the whole world, that you sent your only son, that you came here, that you dwelt among us. And as the ark represented your presence among your people in the ancient days, as David disrobed to show his withness with your people, as your son came here to show that you were with us, God, remind us that you have not left and that you are among us. And Father, when we forget that, that's when we start shooting off in all these directions and saying, I need approval, I need, I need to win, I need to stake my claim, I need to get my ground. And all those things aren't bad, but Father, you just want us to love you first and uh, let everything fall from that and flow out of that. Father, as a church, I just pray that you work in this community of faith and help us to become those people when we leave here because this is just a gathering, but when we leave this room that uh, what we've learned gets done and what we've learned you know, just seeps into our neighborhoods and buildings and workplaces. And uh, It might be confusing, but it's salt in an earth that needs flavor. And so we just pray a blessing on our efforts. Uh, we pray that you help us trust you more. And it's in your name that we pray and everyone said, Amen. Let's sing together.